0: Well, good morning. Good morning. If you had uh, turned with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4 this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor, you're new with us, we're glad you're here. And for about the next 45 minutes, we're going to dig into the Word of God. And we're going to unpack that and apply it to our lives. Um, we began a new series about four weeks ago, and it's a study... Of Nehemiah and the title of our series is Rising from the Ruins and it's the account of how God works through an ordinary man named Nehemiah to rebuild the defensive walls around the city of Jerusalem and to bring spiritual revival to the nation of Israel. And so if you haven't been with us from the beginning you can You'll find the first three or so weeks, four weeks, on our website under the Messages tab. And you'll also find there our follow-on study guide called Encore. You'll find it under the Message tab under Downloads. And Encore is a way to go deeper with the text and to begin to apply it, uh, to work it out in our lives. And so you'll find that there. And on the back side, the new Encore for Kids You can use that as a family devotion or in our small group uh, Bible studies, Um, several of them are using that material. So Pastor Dan writes that every week and does a tremendous job. So, as we launch into this text, let me ask you this. How do you gauge God's support and involvement in something that you're doing? How do you know if God's in it? What benchmarks do you look for? Do you think, well, if it goes well, if it goes smoothly, then God must be in it? Or what happens when things don't go well? What happens when you're facing opposition? Great opposition. Does that mean that God is not in it? That he's not leading? Well, keep this question in mind this morning. And, and consider, can opposition actually be a sign of God's blessing and of his involvement? So hold on to that as we dig into this text today where the, where the message title this morning is Work in Warfare. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll cover the whole thing. Two short parts to the outline this morning. Prayer warriors, first of all, in verses 1 through 9. And then practical workers. In verses 10 through 23. So prayer warriors and practical workers. So here we go. We'll look first at prayer warriors in the first nine verses. And I'm just going to read it a little piece at a time. Because it is a longer text. So we'll take it a chunk at a time and, and work our way through it. It begins in verse 1. When Sanbala. Now I've been calling him San Sanbalat. I put the accent on the last syllable. But I think it's technically sunbalat. I, I like Sanbalat. Let's change it. When, when he heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now, before we break this down a little more, I think it helps to like have the geopolitical landscape. What was the setting for this particular account? And so starting with this man, Sanbalat, Sanbalat, he, he was the governor of Samaria. And that's a region just north of Judea where the city of Jerusalem is. And you may remember that it was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. But when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered it, when the Assyrians conquered it, they took the Israelites captive. And in their place, they implanted their own people. The only Jews left in the land were the weakest and poorest. They left some behind. And then they sent their own people in to occupy their homes and their farms and they intermarried with the Jews that were left behind and so there became this mixed race of people but they weren't just a mixed race they were a mixed religion as well the Samaritans mixed the Jewish faith with some of the Babylonian teachings and so it corrupted their religion and let me read you what the book of second kings has to say in chapter Seven, dude, I don't have the chapter there. Second Kings. (laughs) It says, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Avahamah, and Sephavam, and settled in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. And then a little further down, it says, they worshiped the Lord, but... They also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So here's this mixed race of people now. And Sanbalat is the governor. And he's got a good thing going on. Because he's the top dog in the region. These people answer to him. Now he was subordinate to the Persian king. But that was 700 miles away. So Sanbalat has a good thing going on. And when he saw all of these Jews flooding back into Judea and Jerusalem, he saw it as a threat, a threat to his power base. And so, now, I want to also just take a little bit of an archaeological side road here, because, you know, I like this stuff. I hope you don't mind. But Nehemiah is the only book in the Bible that mentions this man, Sambalat. And some critics would say well it's he's just a fictitious character he's not an historical person it's just a, a making of the bible and it's just these you know stories with a good moral you know ring to them but but he wasn't really an historical person but they were proved wrong again when uh, 700 miles west of Jerusalem, there's this little island in the middle of the Nile River. It's an island called Elephantine Island. And there was actually a Jewish colony living there as far back as 700 B.C., Now, it's fascinating because they even built their own little copy of the temple there, which was later destroyed. They weren't supposed to, but they built a copy of the temple and were offering sacrifices. But even their worship was a little bit corrupted by the Egyptians living around and and with them. But back in 1909, archaeologists unearthed this cache of, of Jewish legal documents and letters. And it's known as the Elephantine Papyrus. And among them, there's a letter written in 407 BC to guess who? Sanballat, his sons. And it says, it says, to Deliah and Shelemiah, sons of Sanballat, governor of Samaria. Right there, it totally verified. The authenticity of the biblical account. And the letter also states this. It says, we sent a letter to our Lord and to Jehohanan, the high priest, and his colleagues, the priests who are in Jerusalem. Jehohanan was in fact the high priest during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And his name is recorded several times in those two books. So here they find these letters that verify that this is a real historical character. Now if that's not enough. In 1962 they're digging around in a in a remote cave in Samaria. And they find another cache of, of scrolls. And a bunch of clay seals. And they find the, the skeletal remains of 205 people. And some believe that these are the remains of Sambalat's descendants. Who fled when... Uh, Alexander the Great invaded the land in uh, 332 B.C. And one of these scrolls had a seal on it that has the name of Sanbalat. And it's known as the Sanbalat Bula, which is like a clay seal. And so this is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So I love this stuff because you got to know, to date, there are more than 25,000 archaeological discoveries that attest to the accuracy of scripture and one of my favorite quotes i've used this many times i love this quote and it's by probably the world's greatest jewish archaeologist nelson gluick and he says it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the bible And so the Bible is not a bunch of fables. It's historical truth and it's God's very word. And I just say this because I want you to have absolute confidence in the book you hold in your lap. This is God's truth. And so Sanballat, real guy, real history, and it's accurately recorded in the Bible. So in chapter 4, He and his cronies see this work progressing on the wall, and they're feeling threatened. And it says he's angry and greatly incensed. The ESV says angry and greatly enraged. This man's fired up. And so he turns again to ridicule and and the threat, actually, of physical violence against the Jews. Look at verse 2. It says, in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Notice, he's saying this in the presence of the Samarian Samarian army. They're standing right behind him. This is like... A not so veiled threat. He's got the army behind him. Now. It might just seem like harmless ridicule. But it was so much more than that. It was the threat of physical violence. And so we said last time. You might remember this. That whenever God is at work. You should expect there to be opposition. It was that. That was true back then. And it's true for us today. Jesus didn't hide this. He said, All men will hate you because of me. He said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We're going to face opposition. It's been said that expecting the world not to attack you just because you're a good person is like expecting a bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. (laughs) It's not gonna happen. They're coming after you. See, the world's not going to say, "Ah, I admire those Christians for the way they protect the unborn. They're not going to say that. They're not going to say, I love the way they value traditional marriage. It just shows such virtue. No, they're going to oppose you for the things you believe. They they oppose Jesus. They persecuted him. They'll persecute you also. We need to expect opposition. And so in verse 3, another man piles on. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So he's kind of mocking them. And now, Tobiah was probably the governor of Ammon, a, a country just to the east of Judea, across the Jordan River. And I showed you a few weeks ago... The ruins of Nehemiah's wall that they uncovered. And the area in blue are the towers to the north and the south. And the area in red is the wall itself which Nehemiah rebuilt. Now they discovered this in 2007. And someone asked me after that week. They said have they identified who built this section of the wall. Based on the names and descriptions in chapter 3. And yeah they believe they actually have. Um, this, it is believed, is addressed in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3, and that it was rebuilt by Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk. That's not the same as the key figure in our, in our study, the author. That's Nehemiah, son of Halkaliah. But it was another Nehemiah, and they identified this is the part of the wall that it talks about in particular in verse 16. Now, archaeologists note that this was rebuilt with haste, They can tell the stones weren't shaped to fit. They weren't quarried new. They just took the existing stones and did the best they could to restack them and pile them up. But to say that a fox climbing on them would break them down is ridiculous. Uh, Here in this picture, you can see there's the lady at the top. And there's the towers and the red area is part of the wall they rebuilt. And look, at those are huge rocks. It, It was still quite a fortress. But... The the evidence affirms this was put together quickly. It wasn't quite the same as the underlying wall that had not been torn down. So, Tobiah's words, again, they sound like just harmless ridicule. But again, he and Sanballat are saying these things with the army standing right there beside them. And it's a serious threat. So, how did Nehemiah respond to this threat? Look at verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. In other words, Nehemiah prayed that God would smite them. Does that sound familiar? That's what Dave prayed last week, right? As we were praying about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. God, smite Putin. Now, that's a strong prayer. It's a strong prayer. It's what's known as an imprecatory prayer. One where you call for judgment or misfortune on somebody else. Now, is it wrong to pray that way? What do you think? Well, among the Psalms, there's 14 of them that are imprecatory. Many of them written by David. Let me just give you a little sampling here. Psalm 17, verse 13. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. Psalm 69. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. In other words, wipe them out, God. Or Psalm 58, verses 6 and 8. Get a load of this. Break their teeth in their mouths. (laughs) That's, That's pretty harsh. Oh God, tear out, oh Lord, the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they move, when they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted. Like a slug melting away as it moves along. Like a stillborn child. May they not see the sun. Those are strong prayers. And they're in the Bible. When I think about some of the things happening in our country. The support for abortion rights. The redefinition of marriage. The legalization of of illicit drugs. When I think about those things. Sometimes I think. Maybe my prayers are too nice. You know, in light of these, these texts, maybe my prayers need to be more like an imprecatory prayer. Maybe I should circle those on, our, on my prayer list. Those people and like pray, go after them. Now you might say, but I don't know, Paul. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, David and Nehemiah are definitely praying for their enemies, aren't they? They're not praying for their prosperity. They're praying for judgment and misfortune. So are imprecatory prayers wrong? Not necessarily. But there's a framework for them that you'll see in Scripture. And I just want to touch on that. There's, first of all, the prerequisite. And number one, our own innocence. David said in Psalm 59, See how they lie in wait for me? Fierce men conspire against me. For no violence or sin of mine, O Lord, I have done no wrong. And likewise, Nehemiah had done nothing wrong. A second prerequisite, our enemy's iniquity. David was praying against evildoers and bloodthirsty men. The men who were coming after Nehemiah, it was in sin that they were going to attack them. So, innocence and iniquity, that's the prerequisite. And um, David and Nehemiah were certainly innocent. So, I would say too that I don't know all the details of the situation in Russia and Ukraine, but it appears to me that those Ukrainian people are innocent. They're, They're just looking for freedom and they are being attacked by an aggressor, by an oppressor. So I think that prayer is appropriate. Now look at the purpose of it though also. And I'm going to go through these quickly, but they'll be in the PowerPoint on the website. The purpose we see in scripture, first of all, is to demonstrate God's righteous judgment of the wicked. And i put some references there. There are many examples of this, but that's one reference. Secondly, to show God's authority over the wicked. That's what David is calling out for. Third, to lead the wicked to seek the Lord. A severe judgment that will bring them to their knees and turn to the living God. And fourthly, to cause the righteous to praise God. These are the reasons that you'll find in scripture. It can't be Just for our personal gain or satisfaction. Boy, Lord, it'd make me feel really good if you'd call down fire and smite them. It's not for personal vengeance. It's for God's vindication. That's another really important part about this. It wasn't personal vengeance. They weren't saying, God, I'm going to go after them. They're saying, you go after them, God, you do it. Romans 12, 19 says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, God's far more capable of exacting vengeance than you or I, isn't he? And so David and Nehemiah, they're saying, God, go get him. Maybe you heard the story of a burglar who was kind of casing out a home. And when the family went on vacation, he thought, well, this is going to be easy. So he picks the lock and he goes inside. But he hears a voice. Jesus sees you and so do I. And he kind of stopped and he trembled. And then he hears it again. Jesus sees you and so do I. Well, now he's pretty concerned. He flips on the light switch and he goes, oh, pfft. It's just a silly parrot. But there sitting beneath the parrot was a Doberman with his teeth glistening. And the parrot calls out, "Sicum Jesus. <laughs> that's what David is saying. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. Sicum Lord. Go get them. They're calling on God to bring judgment upon them. So it says... Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. See, here's the thing. God takes it personally when his people are attacked. When someone attacks you as a child of God, God takes it personally. Remember what he said to Saul of Tarsus, who was out persecuting the early church? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When you persecute them, you're persecuting me. It's one and the same. He says, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you do for me or you do to me. Whatever you don't do, you don't do for me. He takes it personally personally. When somebody attacks one of his children. Including you and me. So, Nehemiah doesn't retaliate. He allows God to do it. And God will do a better job. And in the same way, we're not to avenge our enemies. But leave room for the Lord to do it. So, verse 6. So, we rebuilt the wall. Till all of it had reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arab, and the Ammonites, and the man of Ashdod heard that the, that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead. And that, the, and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. To come and fight against Jerusalem. So now the, the opposition escalates. It's not just mocking and ridicule. They're preparing to come fight. Verse 8 says. They all plotted together. To come and fight against Jerusalem. And then comes verse 9. And this is my favorite verse. In this chapter. But. We prayed to our God. And posted a guard day and night. To meet this threat. We prayed to our God. And posted a guard. Now. We have to remember that this whole endeavor was birthed in prayer. Right? Nehemiah it was on his heart and he was seeking the Lord. And in, in chapter 1 it says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And in response, God softened the heart of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And the king gave him permission to return. And he gave him authority and even gave him resources to get the job done. It began in prayer. And Nehemiah continued praying. There's 12 instances of prayer, just the ones recorded in these 11 chapters. And here again, Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. See, his prayer wasn't just one and done. Well, I prayed about it back in Persia, and now I'm just going to go do it. No, he's praying throughout. And at every juncture, we see Nehemiah praying. But, and here's the key point, he didn't. Just pray. He didn't just pray. That sounds terrible on the surface, doesn't it? He didn't just pray. Pray is a big thing, but he didn't just pray. He prepared for action. That's what he did. See, verse 9 says, We prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He didn't just pray. His response was both spiritual and physical. Spiritual, we prayed. Physical, we posted a guard. Now, as we talked about last time, it shouldn't be let going and let God. It should be get in line with the will of God and get going. Prepare for action. So let me approach this another way by asking you this. Was the battle Nehemiah faced spiritual or was it physical? Was it spiritual or physical? Yes, both. Exactly. It was both. So was Nehemiah's response spiritual or physical? It was both. Yeah, amen. It was both. We prayed to our God and we posted a guard. So now think about the battles that you face. Are they spiritual or are they physical? Probably most of them are both. Let me give you an example of something that on the surface seems purely physical. You're battling cancer. That's a physical battle, right? It's a battle within your body. But there's a spiritual element to it as well. See, the enemy wants you to become discouraged. He wants you to think that God doesn't care, that his word isn't true. He wants you to turn your back on the Lord and disown him. There's a spiritual element even to this physical battle. Now, if battles are both spiritual and physical, then the weapons and tools that we use should be both spiritual and physical. Start with the spiritual. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's Ephesians 6. Start there, but don't stop there. Nehemiah didn't. He didn't just pray, he prayed and then he posted a guard. So if you're unemployed and you need a job, who's going to just pray? I hope you wouldn't as a believer. I hope you would pray first and pray hard. And then renew, refresh your resume. Put in some applications. Start making contacts. Get prepared and go for it. Some people will just go out and do that and not pray. That's wrong too. But we don't just pray. If you're seriously ill, pray first and then go see a doctor. Approach it both spiritually and physically. If you're trying to sell your house, pray. And then find a realtor and put it, get it ready to sell and put it on the market. See, we do both. And this is a principle we're going to see here in Nehemiah. And we see it in places throughout the Bible as well. So now let me challenge you with another question. You ready? The fact that Nehemiah posted a guard, does it mean that he didn't have enough faith? Would somebody point a finger at him and say, well, you obviously don't trust God. You prayed and you don't trust him because you you posted a guard. Well, does the fact that you lock the doors of your house and have a security system and maybe own a gun, does that mean you don't have enough faith? Are you a weak Christian? I don't think so. Of course not. See, God often works through human agency in answering our prayers. And this is a part we have to realize. There's a spiritual and a physical approach to most battles that we face. I heard about a man who lived on the, in a second story home close to a river. And the river began to flood. And they sent out warnings by news and radio and the cell phone alerts. They said, evacuate the area. It's going to flood. The man stayed. And after a while, a a jeep drove by his home and tried to convince him, come on, buddy, get out of there. You're in danger. You need to get out. And he said, no, don't worry about me. I have faith. I prayed to God. I'll be fine. So the water keeps rising. Next, he's up on the second floor. And a boat comes by and they try to convince him, you're in danger, you're going to drown, get in the boat. No, don't worry about me, I have faith, I'll be fine, God will take care of me. The water keeps going up. He's on the roof of a house and a helicopter, rescue helicopter spots him and they lower a basket. And they're shouting at him through a megaphone, get in the basket, you're going to drown. He goes, I'll be fine, I prayed, I have faith, God will take care of me. The water keeps rising. The man drowns. He goes to heaven and he says to God, I prayed to you. Why didn't you save me? And God says, well, I sent you a jeep, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect me to do? See, God often works through human agency in answering our prayers. And we need to understand that. Now, if you're one of the many who's doing the 40-day prayer challenge, it started on Wednesday and it ends on Easter. You might remember reading, I think it was Friday, day three. It said this, we need to work like it depends on us, but we need to pray like it depends on God. I think that's pretty good. We prayed and we posted a guard. We gave it over to the Lord We sought his direction, his protection, and then we posted our guard. So, we see these prayer warriors, first of all, and next, let's look at practical workers. And I'm going to pick up the pace here, don't worry. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So now the people are already physically exhausted and Sanbalat and his ridicule, his threats are now starting to work. The people are very concerned about what might happen. And so, they're tired and they're afraid. And Nehemiah's leadership was really important at this point. And so, verse 13, he says, Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Now, I want you to note, these are all lethal weapons. Swords, spears, and bows. These are not just shields. These are lethal weapons. Nehemiah would protect the workers and the people of Jerusalem even with lethal force if he had to. Now, got have you gotta process scripture, interpret scripture. You might think, well, wait a minute, Paul. Jesus said, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him. The other also, right? We know the saying, turn the other cheek. Nehemiah doesn't seem to be turning the other cheek, so is this contradictory? Some have suggested that Jesus' words here promote complete pacifism. Pacifism is uh, is an opposition to military or to war of any type. So people will conscientiously object to military service. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author of War and Peace, was really influenced by his interpretation, I'd say wrong interpretation, of these verses. His novel was based on the idea that the elimination of the police, the military, and all forms of authority would result in this utopian society. And he had a great influence on other leaders like Mahatma Gandhi. And so... Is that correct? Is that a right interpretation of what Jesus said? Should Christians be more or less a doormat and just let people walk all over us? Turn the other cheek, brother. Is that what Jesus means? I don't think so. When he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, first of all, a better interpretation would be slap. It's not a closed fist blow. It's an open-handed slap. And it's interesting when scripture has a little detail, the right cheek... Why the right cheek? Why didn't you just say when someone slaps you on the cheek, strikes you on the cheek? Because most people are right-handed. And so a slap on the right cheek would be a backhanded slap. And in the rabbinical tradition, that was twice the insult of a forward-handed slap. This is not talking about a violent attack. It's talking about an insult. Jesus is saying if somebody attacks you, he's not saying if someone attacks you, you can't defend yourself. He says if somebody insults you, don't return fire by insulting them back. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let me give you another passage that sheds even more light on this. Remember when Jesus was preparing to send the disciples back out a second time? He said this to him. He asked, this is Luke 22. Luke 22. When I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, Jesus replied. Okay, now he's sending them out. With swords. Now, they weren't going to overthrow Rome or start a war with two swords, but they would be able to defend themselves against attackers, robbers, or wild beasts. He's sending them out equipped to defend themselves. So, we're not called to pacifism, and we're not called to personal uh, vengeance, but we are called to self-defense. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Nehemiah. He prepares to defend himself and others against these attackers, even with lethal force, if necessary. So look at verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Tells them, get ready to fight, men. Don't be afraid. Get ready to fight. Nehemiah maintained the right perspective. God is awesome. He's powerful. He's omnipotent. You don't need to be afraid. In other words, don't let fear keep you from doing what God has called you to do. Because as we said before, if God calls you to do something, he's going to give you the strength and the resources to get it done. See, God called Nehemiah to this project. Nehemiah didn't take this on himself. Like I said, it was birthed in prayer. God called him to it. And so this was God's battle. This wasn't Nehemiah's battle. This was God's battle. And Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. He's going to do the fighting. We, I asked Andy to, to sing the song. It's an older worship song. It kind of dates me. But the battle belongs to the Lord, right? That's really what we see happening here. One of the lyrics in that, and thank you for doing it, Andy. It says, when your enemy presses in hard, do not fear. The battle belongs to the Lord. Take courage, my friend. Your redemption is near. The battle belongs to the Lord. So Nehemiah said, don't be afraid. Don't let fear keep you from doing what God's called you to do. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. See, the enemy was going to try to catch him off guard sneak in and attack them. But Nehemiah says two things. Number one, we were aware of their plot. And number two, God had frustrated it, had frustrated their plot. Now think about how this came about. Nehemiah was seeking the Lord in prayer. He stayed close and connected to the Lord. And God made sure that he learned Of their plot. See, he learned of it, but he says it was God who frustrated their plan. And it wasn't anything miraculous. It was God's providence. Let me give you a definition of providence. We've covered this before. Providence is God working through the ordinary things of life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. He's orchestrating all the ordinary things. There was nothing miraculous here. Does that mean God wasn't behind it? No, it was. It said God frustrated their plan. But he did it through ordinary means. Nehemiah was so close to the Lord. He's praying. He's seeking the Lord at every turn. And God makes sure that he knows what he needs to know to succeed in this this endeavor that he called him to. So, do you see God's providence in your life? Do you see that? Are you staying close enough to the Lord and seeking his will so that you're in line with his will? See, when you do that, then you get to see God come in and accomplish his will through us and for us. So we need to stay close. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Armor now. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Now again, this doesn't portray a lack of faith. It portrays diligence and prudence. They, they are, yes, they're giving it over to the Lord. But they're, being, they're preparing for the battle. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people. The work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Well, this was like their ancient version of a wide area network. See, they'd use these trumpets to communicate over these great distances between them on the wall when they hear the trumpet blow everybody was flood over there with their weapons and fight but look at what else it says wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet join us there our God will fight for us our God will fight for us here we go again who was fighting were the men fighting or was God fighting Yes, <laughs> both. Exactly. You see kind of a pattern here? Listen to Joshua chapter 23 verses 10 and 11. Verses 10. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. The man had the sword. He killed a thousand people, but it was the Lord fighting for him. Psalm 44.3, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. Isn't that cool? God is fighting, but the men are fighting too. There's a spiritual and a physical element to this. Now, I'm a visual learner. I like pictures. Any of you like pictures too? Yeah, that's why they call students pupils and not ears. Because we like to see. (laughs) We're visual learners. So a picture says a lot. I think these pictures capture a lot of what we're saying here in Nehemiah. Isn't this beautiful? A soldier armed, trained, prepared on his knees praying to God. I think that's beautiful. A godly soldier is not depending on himself and his weapons alone to protect them. But he's not just sitting there unarmed and and hoping for the best. Both go hand in hand. You see, this gives new meaning to prayer warriors, doesn't it? They're praying and they're armed. One of the things I am concerned about is the moral decline in our military in this country As more and more godly men are forced out by changing policies and by religious persecution. We need godly men in the military, especially in places of leadership. See, someone said, if America stops being a good nation, she'll stop being a great nation. We'll falter. That's one of my concerns. So I do, I love this picture. Um, I think there's many men of faith in our military and women of faith. Not all. But we know many of them, and they're godly warriors. So, verse 21, it says, So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Nehemiah's men—they weren't pacifists, but they weren't seeking personal vengeance either. They were defending themselves. They were fighting for a good cause. Now, again, as best I understand it, I think that's the situation with the Ukrainians too. I. They're not a godly nation, but there's believers there, and I believe their purpose is just. They're trying to defend their freedom. And so I think it was totally right to pray that the Lord would smite Putin, that he would bring judgment upon him. You know what I'd like to see? Vladimir Putin, like, knocked off his tank, his jeep, his horse, like Saul of Tarsus, laying on his back. Saul had two questions. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Boy, I'd love to hear Putin say that. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? That God would change the heart of of Vladimir Putin. And that a revival would spark in Europe. The pagan, some of the most pagan nations on the earth right now. Wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Right? God had him, God smited, smote him. He had him eating grass like a cow. That's how far down he brought him. Boy, I'd love to see Putin eating grass. It would be cool. I don't know if some outlets would cover it, (laughs) but it'd be cool. Maybe Twitter would block it, I don't know. But that he would, God would humble him. And he would repent and he'd turn to God and then God would use him to ignite a revival in Europe. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Let's circle that and pray for it. Let's pray that God would do a work there. Well, wrapping this up, Nehemiah and his men faced a lot of opposition, didn't they? But did that mean God wasn't in it? Not at all. Quite the opposite. In fact, they faced opposition because God was in it. When you face opposition... First of all, make sure you're not going out doing your own thing. That it's really birthed in prayer. But then go for it in faith. And if you face opposition... Jesus promised you would. Approach it the way Nehemiah did. Whenever God is at work, you should expect opposition. But remember... When God calls us to do something, he gives us the wisdom, strength, and resources to get it done. Secondly, Nehemiah prayed that God would smite his enemies, and it wasn't wrong. But we do have to remember the prerequisite and the purpose for imprecatory prayers before we go unleashing these on our boss, our neighbors, our (laughs) in-laws. We need to have the right purpose and the right prerequisites. They're part of pursuing God's glory. They're not about personal vengeance, or, but about godly vindication. Nehemiah's battle was both physical, spiritual, and physical, and so was his response. God often works through the ordinary human agency, ordinary human activity, to answer his prayers. Oops, I got one ahead. Nehemiah posted a guard, and then, no, Nehemiah prayed, and then he posted a guard. Spiritual, physical, God works through ordinary human activity or agency, often in answering his prayers. And then we see in the account of Nehemiah that we're not called to pacifism or personal vengeance, but we can be called to self-defense, and that's what we see. You know, on top of all this, just another point I didn't put in here, God's word is true, and you can count on it. Jesus said, not one little punctuation mark will pass away until all is fulfilled. It's the truth of God, and we can stand on that. So here's Nehemiah, just an ordinary guy who stayed close to the Lord, who prayed hard, and God used him to do extraordinary things. And you know what? God wants to use you and I in the same way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do say in your word that your word goes out and it doesn't return void, empty. Instead, it accomplishes the purpose you have for it. So God, I pray that you would take this text and you'd use it to accomplish your purpose in our lives, in my life, God. Change us, grow us, transform us into your likeness. And God, as we face challenges today, this week, in the days and years ahead, help us to be like Nehemiah. Help us to be people of prayer, discerning your will, and following so closely that we're in lockstep with you, Lord. And then help us to be people of action who do your will. God, do an extraordinary work through us for your kingdom and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.